Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. Thanks so much for coming to this event. My name's Edwina Throsby and I'm the Head of Talks and Ideas here and I'm so pleased that you've given up your beautiful Sunday afternoon in Sydney to come and sit in a dark room and talk about some incredibly important events that we're all still dealing with. This event came about um, because, like a lot of families, my daughter and I uh, took our summer holiday this year with friends in what's an annual event that's usually relaxed and um, full of joy and a disconnect from everything else. Um, but this year, obviously, it was very different. Instead of lying around reading books, we spent the time checking apps, uh, checking the weather, listening to the ABC, packing up the car so we could go if required. When we went to the beach, it was covered in smoke, there was ash raining on us. There was this incredible sense of dread, an incredible sense of danger, an incredible sense that something profoundly had shifted for the Australian summer and the things this time that is so kind of foundational in the memories of all of us. Of course, we were the lucky ones. We were able to drive north before um, our area was evacuated and, um, and, you know, watched the real catastrophe unfold on television. What others have lost is beyond imagining uh, homes and towns and pets and beloved family. And my heart goes out to all of those people directly affected. But of course, we're all reeling from this. We've all been affected in one way or another. Countless hectares of bush and country are gone. Wildlife in the millions and millions and millions. But also something bigger, a sense of a future, a sense that she'll be right. She is most certainly not right. And if we were ever relaxed and comfortable, we're sure as hell not anymore. We're a traumatised nation. We're grieving and we're angry. But what we've also shown after the last months, uh, over the last months, is the most incredible capacity for bravery, for volunteerism, for generosity. Our communities have pulled together in this disaster and faced it with strength and with togetherness. There's so much desire to help all around this country, and yet I think there's still a lot of confusion about what we actually need to do, what's the best way to do for people in the city, for people in the country, how do we come together and help each other? So the purpose of this session today is twofold. Firstly, to come together and try and make sense of it a little bit, to deal with our grief and shock that we all feel, and to hear about what has been done, what is being done, and what will be done, what can be done, what you can do, what you can do and what we can all do together to try and deal with this, address it, and have an effect on our future. I would particularly like to thank our speakers today. They've all come here and donated their time um, for this free event so we could make it a community event in the true sense. After the session, the speakers will be in the foyer um, to answer any more questions that you might have. Um, I think that more than ever, it's up to the community to come together and to talk and to bring down you know, any walls that there might be and to actually try and function in a way that is helpful and important. Um, thanks also to Julia Baird, who's hosting this session today. She, you know her from the Drunk, the ABC, columns in Fairfax and, um, you know, decades of excellent journalism. 
Um, and I'd also like to really thank our Auslan communicators today. Sean Sweeney here, um, you probably all recognise because he was the Auslan <laughs> interpreter for... And he and Fran Collins are going to be interpreting um, this event today for, for everybody. So thanks again for coming. Please stick around. Uh, there's a session after this which is looking at the longer policy and political implications of all of this and what we might actually be able to do to change things. So stick around for that if you can. Um, and I hope that you get something out of today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Edwina, and thanks so much to all of you for coming in on a sunny Sunday to listen to these wonderful people here, all experts, all deeply thought, thoughtful people who have spent a lot of time in recent weeks and will we'll do so going forward, trying to work out what the best way is forward. Um, now, I'm told there'll be a... You can, if you're going to tweet, you can do ideas at the house, and we're going to have questions on Slido. Um, We've got time for about 15 minutes. So an URL is going to come up on the screen at some point. Um, there we go. Oh, no. OK, good. So you log into the Wi-Fi with ask a question, bushfire crisis is a password, use the hashtag bushfire, and you can put questions in that way. And I'll be logging into it. Um, so I'm just also logging into my computer now. I mean, the point is, we were warned. You know, Indigenous people warned us for decades. Fire commissioners warned us for decades. Royal commissioners warned us. Firefighters warned us. And then when it came, it was worse than anything that we'd imagined. I mean, all the headlines in the newspapers about the terror, the dread, catastrophic, cataclysmic, could not even capture the images that we saw and the experiences that people had on our shores and in our woods and in their homes. It was a time of terror. 33 people dead, almost 3,000 houses lost, 7.7 .7 million hectares burnt, a billion animals dead. And this iconic building we woke up to shrouded in, in smoke, toxic smoke. And the images of those little kids standing really super still, as they were getting a medal pinned on their chest for their father's bravery that had died in the fire. But something changed in the way we viewed our country and, and perhaps our politicians this year. We're told it's the new normal, but the question is, do we even accept the word normal when we talk about this? Some people say we should think as though we're at war. Um, how do we train for it? Now, the good news is that for the first time this season, the fires have been put out in New South Wales, but many are still in a state of emergency, as Erin will be, will be talking about, um, and there's more fires ahead. And now comes the time to recover, repair, prepare. And how do we do that without sinking into despair? How do we get people to act? I mean, former Fire Commissioner Greg Mullins has been urging action for some time now, and one thing I've noticed hosting a TV show about current affairs for the past few years is how, how little we listen 
to expert advice, how this kind of paralysis and inaction, we have report after inquiry, after royal commission, after recommendation, and then again, and then another one, and there's this weird kind of stasis. And when it comes to bushfires we've, we've, and climate change, also the climate scientists are the other ones who warned us, of course, we now see the consequences. And that's what we have to reverse. There was even a headline last week in the, in the Herald, but Nick Greiner, my government used to act on expert advice. Like, that was a headline. That is a quaint, quaint idea, as though you might pull in people that actually knew something about a problem in order to work out what a solution was. But as Edwina pointed out, there's so many, there was, there was such, so many reasons to be proud of how we as people responded to it. I went um, to the fires and still are responding to the fires. When I went up to Tari, in fact, it's subs people I spoke to subsequently all said to me, the first people on the scene was a truck of Muslims with barbecues making sausages for everyone. I haven't tracked them down, maybe someone else has. But I'm really intrigued to find out who they were. The fireys who went without sleep for weeks, the communities that gathered, that built each other temporary shelter, that housed, clothed, fed each other, cared for each other. There is so much concern and so much desire to get it right, to see serious action in climate and to better prepare for extreme weather, for more fires ahead. And that, of course, is why we're here. And today, what is next? And we have our panellists. We have Nick Ritter, Lorena Allum, Erin Riley, Elizabeth Mossop, Christine Morgan, Larry Vogelnest. We're going to talk about a host of solutions in the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our country, as well as practical plans. Animals, animals architecture, mental health, permaculture, ancient, and modern wisdom. So we're lucky to have these, these people here with us today, all experts that we should be listening to. Now, Lorena Allum, your Wooleri woman from Northwest New South Wales. She's Guardian Australia's Indigenous Affairs Editor. Please welcome her. She's going to speak to us. Oh, Nick's first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was a little bit of a fail. I oh, was sorry about that. So Lorena's like, thanks very much, but no. <laughs> okay, um, Nick Retard will be speaking to us first today. Co-founder of Milkwood Permaculture. And he's very passionate about authentic outcomes for students studying permaculture and life skills and cultivating community. And he spends his time growing good food, keeping bees, cultivating mushrooms, teaching permaculture design, and now talking wherever you can about climate, about fires, and about the way we need to think about country. So let's welcome him today. Thanks, Thank William. Are you second? We're all here today because we've been affected. We've all been touched in some way by the terrifying events that have unfolded in the last few months. We've watched as millions of hectares of our precious forests have burnt. We are told that more than a thousand million animals have perished. We've seen farms raised and livestock killed. And we've seen towns consumed by fire. The smoke has stung our eyes and become lodged in our lungs. Some of us have faced the threat of the flames directly. Some of us have lost our homes. Some have lost their lives. We've seen places that we love smashed. I want to show you a few photos, a few happy snaps, 
some are not so happy, from this summer. And I want to talk about what I saw happen in one little seaside town over the new year. But first, I just want us to take a, a little step back for a moment and think about what we really care about. The fact that you're here means that you care. I hope that you all have a special place that you care about. I think you probably care about the people there and the environment there too. I think we all should have somewhere we care about, somewhere we belong. I've been looking for a place to belong since I was a little kid. When I was two years old, my parents landed the job of managing a 50,000-acre abandoned farm turned national park called Willandra, 750 kilometres due west of here, right up in the northwest corner of Wiradjuri country, the land of the three rivers, the Womble, the Kalair and the Murrumbidgeri. I was just a little white boy, so white. <laughs> but we would go out to the ephemeral lakes that formed after a decent rain to watch the water birds gather the ducks and the herons, and thousands upon thousands of pelicans. People have always done that out there. We would find quartz blades and grinding stones and be reminded of the fact that the Wiradjuri have had an enduring connection to that place for thousands of generations and will always belong there. When I was 10, the National Parks brought in a new rule and my family was moved along. We went from one country town to another, never quite belonging anywhere. Maybe that's what drew me to the ideas of permaculture. Many of you may have heard of permaculture, and you might think it has something to do with gardening. And it is concerned about how we grow our food, but it's much more than that. Permaculture proposes the idea that we can develop a culture that can endure and thrive culture that can become a permanent part of that special place where we belong. The idea we can work with, na with nature rather than against her. That we are not separate from nature. Indeed, the idea that we are nature too. Permaculture holds at its core the premise that it's possible for us to meet our needs without depleting the ecosystem around us. The idea that like every other living being, I can be part of a complex web of life that benefits the whole. For many years, my partner Kirsten and I have been using permaculture as a framework and helping others to do the same, to try to connect with the places that we live, to connect with the soil of a place, to connect with its water, its plants, its fungi, its animals, to learn its seasons and its foods, and most of all, to connect with its people, its community, Permaculture is a framework for reconnecting with a place. Eventually, we found a place that we think we belong. It's Malakadi country in southern Tasmania. But this Christmas, we did what tens of thousands of other Australians do each year. We went to visit our families. We started in Sydney, hired a car, and drove west to visit my family in central New South Wales. We'd heard on the news that the giant Gospers Mountain fire might jump the highway north of Lithgow. So we drove an extra five or so hours south and skirted around it through a drought-ravaged and smoked landscape. 
I remember thinking, it's bad this year, but we've seen this before. We spent Christmas stuck inside because of the smoke, so we were looking forward to heading south to spend some time with Kirsten's family uh, on the coast in East Gippsland. There were no fires down there at the time and it was much cooler. We drove through more smoke and saw forests that had been burned on the south coast, and again I thought, it's bad this year, but we've seen this before. Malakuta is somewhere we go every year. It's a place we have picnics on isolated beaches and kids have water fights and go fishing and we dive for abalone. We read books and watch the parrots on the front lawn and just watch the ocean and the inlet. On the 29th of December, the Emergency Victoria app beeped four times and told us we needed to watch and act. It said there was a fire about 40 kilometres away to the southwest at a place we didn't know called Wingan River. It still seemed a long way off and the wind wasn't blowing it towards us, so we kept an eye on our phones. But we'd seen this before. We did some cleaning up around the house and outside. We found some masks, nothing serious, just being prepared. The next morning, the app beeped four times again and said there was now an emergency warning in place for Malakuta. So we did what everyone does and turned on ABC local radio. And it said that the fire was burning towards the one road in and out of town. The app beeped four more times. It was too late to leave. We hadn't seen that before. There were about a thousand residents in Malakuta at the time and about 4,000 visitors. They were mostly in tents and caravans, unlike us. We have connections to that place. Scotty, my brother-in-law, is a local professional firefighter, so we asked him what he knew. He said it was a big one, but it was not moving fast and there was a good chance that it wouldn't come towards Malakuta. But the smoke was getting thicker and we were getting on edge. So we had a family conference and we all decided that it would be best uh, to move a few, few houses down to a friend's place. Not a close friend, but this is a community and people help each other. It was a big and solid house and they didn't mind sharing. We spent the afternoon making their place more secure. Sprinklers on the roof, hose down the garden, drums of water everywhere, mops to put out spot fires. We literally battened down the hatches with batten screws. We connected a generator. Malakuta is at the end of a long transmission line, so the locals know how to deal with a blackout. We set up a room downstairs in the middle of the building as a refuge in case the worst happened. The beeping from everyone's phones got more insistent. Scotty said the fire was coming towards us, but it wouldn't reach us until the next morning. The sun started to set. We heard that people with nowhere else to go were gathering at the wharf in the centre of town. We could see small boats on the inlet, many without lights. We heard people were planning to spend the night on the water or on the beach. We settled down with eight kids and seven adults and tried to rest. The next morning, New Year's Eve, the sun rose and the smoke was, was thick. By 8am in the morning, the sky had turned blood red. The power went out, so we started the generator. We put all the kids downstairs with one adult. They knew something was up. There were far too many lollies. <laughs> The rest of the adults were at battle stations. Long pants, long sleeves, leather gloves, hats, masks. Some of us had goggles. 
By 9am, it had gotten very, very dark, completely dark, pitch black. The smoke cloud was directly over our head, and that meant that the fire was coming directly towards us. It started raining ash and burnt black leaves. The sky was full of birds. They were disoriented and panicking, trying to escape from the fire front. We got hit in the face by tiny, terrified wrens that were disoriented by our torches. Gradually, the sky glowed blood red again. We could hear a distant roar. Black cockatoos circled over our heads, calling their alarm. We usually say that black cockatoos bring rain, but not that day. The roar was getting louder, but then we heard the first pop in the distance. Before that sound, I was still confident that the fireys had things under control. Not the forest fire, of course, I knew that would burn, but those were the sounds of gas bottles, fuel cans, cars and homes burning. They became more frequent. Thud, pop, thud. The wood pile in the neighbour's house fell over from the shock. The sounds of the sirens got louder. We knew there were over 20 fire crews stationed in the town, but we hadn't actually seen any in our bit. There were flames at the end of the street. Embers landed nearby. An older house, just a few doors down, caught fire and was engulfed in minutes. A CFA tanker arrived. They dumped all their water on it and then they left. It was still well alight, but they had bigger problems. The Melaleucas on the foreshore turned into a fireball. There were individual fires in all directions, and the pops and the thuds continued. But we gradually realised that the main fire front had passed to the west of the town. The tension slowly subsided. We were going to be all right. The kids came outside. Over 100 homes were lost in Malakuta that day. No one lost their lives. It could have been a lot worse and in other places it was. Slowly, the fires around town were brought under control. The smoke was still thick enough to sting our eyes and catch in our throats. We went back to our family's home. It was still there. We were the lucky ones. When the wind shift on, shifted onshore, we took our 10-year-old son, Asher, for a walk on the beach to get some fresh air in his lungs and to release some energy. We needed some space too. The beach was covered in the charred remains of the bush. The leaves, the bark and twigs had been baked in the oxygen-deprived conditions of the firestorm, lifted by the updraft and dumped into the ocean. There were birds there too. Rainbow lorikeets, king parrots, New Holland honeyeaters, magpies, kookaburras, gang-gangs, a barn owl. There was a corpse every few metres. That beach is 15 kilometres long. <coughs> Over the next few days, we watched the local community start to come to terms with what had just happened. And it's just a start. Locals who had lost their homes went to work. They set up generators and opened their stores so the visitors could get what they needed. The two little independent supermarkets in town managed to open, and cafes gave away free coffee. Stories emerged of houses lost and miraculous escapes. 
There were people sobbing in the main street and lots of hugging. People were taking care of each other in a hundred different ways. We knew that there was no chance the road would be reopened anytime soon, and it was unlikely that the power would come back on either. It was clear that resources would be stretched. Fuel was being rationed, and the shops were running low on the basics. The community is resilient, but it couldn't support an extra 4,000 people in those conditions. We heard that a Navy ship was coming. Community meetings, evacuation plans, we decided we wanted to return to the place that we belong and get to work there in our community. We felt a lot of different things in the last six weeks. Fear, anxiety, anger, sadness. Time heals all wounds, they say, but we can't just let these feelings fade away. Because this emergency is not over. We need to transform our pain into action. Despite what our leaders may suggest, resilience is not achieved through resignation. We cannot allow this to become the new normal. Throughout the rest of this event, you'll hear from a whole bunch of very intelligent people who will share with you their ideas on what we can do to better manage our land, to help each other deal with the trauma of this catastrophe, to help our wildlife to recover, to raise funds for our communities, and change our land management practices, our politics and our economy. Throughout the rest of this event, I want you to keep asking yourself, how do I implement these ideas in my community? How can I take action to make sure this does not become the new normal? What sort of future do you want for your special place? And how can you reconnect with that place? Thank you. Thanks so much, Nick. The image of the wrens flying into your face, I had not heard of that before. It's awful. And the corpses along the beach. But the words of resilience isn't achieved through resignation and the need to turn pain into action is so important right now. Um, now, and now we are coming to Lorena Allen, who, Lorena Allen, who I introduced prematurely before. <laughs> um, URA woman from Northwest New South Wales and also the editor of the Guardian's Indigenous coverage. Thank, Thank you. you. Yama, everyone. I'd like to start by acknowledging that we gather on the land of the Gadigal people, whose sovereignty was never ceded, and I pay my respects to their elders and their ancestors, and I pay my respects to any other First Nations people who are here today. As Julia said, I'm Lorena Allen, I'm the Guardian's Indigenous Affairs Editor, and my family ties are to the Uwalari Nation of far northwest New South Wales, the Narran Lake region, or Darawa, as we call it. So we are freshwater people and river people, and our borders are the rivers. Our, the water holds important stories of creation. Uh, they talk, it talks about our country, our totem animals, and our history, the way we relate to each other. So when we witness the, uh, the governments and companies buying and selling and hoarding the water, we witness our failing river systems and the mass fish kills. That's, we witness that with horror. 
It was only last summer that we saw grown men standing in the river crying as they held these big old Murray cod in their arms. I mean, some of those old fish are deep dwellers. We don't see them. Um, some of them are 80 to 100 years old. To, to see them in that state is incredibly distressing. To us, they are ancestors and they are beings that we are here to care for. So we were raised to believe that we are not above the natural world. We belong with the country and its inhabitants. My cousins out west often send videos of the dust storms that are rolling in just about twice a week now. Um, my cousin half joked that she's got cleaning her house down to a fine art. She can get it all done in two hours, curtains, floors, the lot, um, because the whole place needs a clean every couple of days. She has, however, given up on the car. But happily, the videos that they've been sending this week have been of the waters rushing to fill the Macquarie and the Namoi rivers. And everyone's so excited because it's been so long since they heard the sound of the river flowing over the rocks. And that's sound that we sing about in our songs. I was in Moree last week, actually, which also had a fair bit of rain. The Mihai was flowing, and that has a really uplifting effect on people's spirits. You can feel it. There were pelicans cruising down the river. I mean, where they'd been hiding all these months of drought, I have no idea, but there they were. Fish were jumping out of the water. And as we drove out of town, there was this gaggle of little kids who were heading down to the river with a bucket to catch some yabbies. I couldn't think of any, a better thing to do on a Friday afternoon. So that rain is very welcome. And on top of that, the RFS announced this week that all the fires in New South Wales are either out or contained. What a relief. An end to the immediate horror. But the country is so fragile now that the rain brings new problems. My colleague Graham Redfern wrote a story in The Guardian yesterday that really exemplifies the complexity of the catastrophe that we now face. Bushfires in the catchment areas, followed by heavy rain, have washed sludge and ash into the rivers and deprived the remaining fish of oxygen. Macquarie perch were once the most, one of the most common kinds of fish in, our, in the Murray-Darling River system. Our mob call them yellow belly, and they are really as common as yabbies. In fact, you go down to the river, yellow belly are a delicious feed. You catch them straight out of the river, cook them up on a fire on a fry pan on the, on the river bank, and they are, you know, we just love to do that. Last week, the scientist Luke Pearce went out to Manus Creek in Snowy Mountains uh, in the catchment area to rescue the Murray's last population of Macquarie perch. He's been going to this same spot for 10 years, and he went out there this time because there'd been rain and the creek was flowing fast. But as he and his colleagues stood on the riverbank with their nets at the ready, he said the water turned to a river of black porridge. We got there at about midday with two teams, he said, but we were too late. It was a front of black water coming down. It was a moment of complete despair. An electronic probe in the water monitoring the oxygen levels dropped to zero within hours, he said. Maybe if we'd got there four or five hours earlier, we may have been able to get one or two more. He said he got 10. 10. 10 Macquarie perch. He said the area was littered with the burnt remains of wildlife. There wasn't a sound, he said, nothing at all. This is the ongoing carnage in our bush. The fires are out, yes, but nothing is ever going to be the same again. And are we prepared to accept that? Or do we want to do something to protect what's left? While my family ties are in the West, I grew up on the beautiful south coast of New South Wales, and I have a deep love of the special places of my childhood spent on Ewan land. 
The beaches, the bush, the butterwings are my home, and I still go there every chance I get. So to watch the entire south coast go up in flames, all of it, all at once, has been a traumatising experience, to say the least. We were holidaying there on New Year's Eve uh, when I got the RFS text saying it was too late to leave and to seek shelter. The Karawan fire was on its way and we were stuck on its eastern side. The sky went bright red and then black. The streetlights came on at two in the afternoon. Then a series of texts arrived saying that if the fire front came close, we were to grab woolen blankets and head to the beach and stand waist deep in the water with the blankets over our heads until the fire passed. And given that we'd been evacuated the day before because there was a three-metre bronze whaler on the beach, um, it wasn't, didn't seem like the most attractive option, but I figured I'd still have chosen the shark any day. Thankfully, though, we didn't have to do that. The fire front passed. It was roaring like an aeroplane. The sound of it is something hard to describe. And we saw a pyrocumulus form, one of those fire clouds. Um, there was thunder and lightning and this ashy, gluggy black rain. It was the weirdest thing. The next day, there was a mass exodus from the south coast, the biggest peacetime evacuation of Australians since Cyclone Tracy. And naturally, we left too. Many good people I know at down there have lost their houses. And I kept thinking of all the other things that First Nations people have lost, things that are gone for good. These fires have burnt away canoe trees and birthing trees, Rock art sites, which have withstood thousands of years of natural disasters, are now destroyed. This year, Australia commemorates 250 years since Captain Cook arrived. In that 250 years, look at the state of our lands and our waters. First Nations people I speak to are heartbroken. They are angry. When they look at what has been lost this bushfire season, they despair. What we have lost can't be replaced. But we can't and we won't give up on the country's ability to heal if First Nations are given the lead on land management. Not in a tokenistic piecemeal way, but in a recognition of prior ownership, of their careful stewardship for thousands of years. There has to be a sharing of authority over the care of our lands and waters. As traditional fire practitioner Victor Stephenson said on the ABC recently, when he was asked what he would say to governments struggling with recovery efforts. He said, jump in the passenger seat and let us drive for a change. Mm. And if you sit in the passenger seat, you won't get left behind. Australians are at a major turning point in the way we look at our amazing continent. If you want to live here safely, you need to change your way of thinking about the land and the way it's cared for. Empowering and resourcing traditional owner knowledge systems will help, but it has to be a true partnership. We can't just rebuild just to replicate the colonial structures of the past. As the state and federal recovery effort continues, First Nations voices must be heard as the sovereign peoples of this land. Yalu, thank you. Thank you so much. The river's black with porridge, mm. like a river of black porridge mm. is an incredible, and the bronze whaler thing is kind of freaking me out. <laughs> it's like a real life game of would you rather, would <laughs> right. you rather bushfire shark, <laughs> right. which shows the shark. Right. <laughs> um, it's never been, it's just never been more apparent 
how crucial it is to listen to First Nations people and have them lead the way when it comes to repairing and preparing, as Lorena has been telling us. Um, and a true sharing of authority. Now, Erin Riley does many things. She is writing a PhD. She is also a writer. And she is also the founder of Find a Bed, which is a volunteer-run organisation that was created directly in response to the bushfires to address the gaps that were so obvious and immediately evident in existing bushfire relief efforts. Initially, they were linking Australians who had spare beds with those who were displaced because of the fires, and they've gone on to do much more, but Erin, we'll hear from you now. Thank you. I arrived here today with a little bit of time to spare, thinking I'd read over my notes, get in the right, you know, get in the right headspace. But almost as soon as I sat down, my phone rang. I had a call from Amethyst, who works with an organisation called Indigenous Crisis Response and Recovery. She was calling me to let me know one of the people she's working with, an Aboriginal elder named Uncle Rodney, who had been living in a tent since he lost his home on New Year's Eve. Uh, was struggling because it's now raining, and that meant his tent had flooded, and he needed somewhere to stay. He'd been given two nights of, accommodi uh, of emergency accommodation, but that was it. Fortunately, we were able to get on the phone quickly, find him a hotel in Maruya, where he lives. He had to stay in town because he's also lost his car and has no way of getting around. So we've got a place for him to stay for the next two weeks while he looks for something more permanent. It was a really stark reminder to me that this emergency is not over, that the people who are affected by it, and many of those people, are still dealing with day-to-day -day realities of crisis. I'd love to tell you a bit more about what we've done at Find a Bed over the last seven weeks, but if there's one thing you take from my time here today, please let it be this. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to crisis. We can't just throw money and canned goods at the situation. We need to listen to the people who are affected, to share their burden, and to be nimble enough to provide each person and each community with the empathy, care, and practical help that they need. I live out in southwest Sydney, between Picton and Camden, with my family. We live near the Green Wattle Creek fire. It only got about within about 15 kilometres of us, but it very much affected our community. We've experienced bushfire before. I lived in the Blue Mountains in, during the 2001 Black, Saturday, uh, Black Christmas fires, um, and we have this deeply personal knowledge of what it's like to live with that threat, to watch the flames approach, to have packed your bags in your car and be ready to go. Sometimes it takes weeks just waiting for that fire front. On December 31st, many people in our local community had to evacuate. Evacuating with animals is often quite difficult. People love their pets, but many evacuation centres can't take them. We've got a bit of spare land, so I put out a tweet saying, hey, we've got some spare beds, we're on five acres. If anyone's evacuating with their horses, please feel free to come to our place. A few people replied saying, hey, we've got something similar, we'd love to help too. I thought, there's got to be a better way of doing this. So I put together two Google Forms and a free Wix website, and thus Find a Bed was born. I should say, originally I'd named it Share a Bed. Took me a little <laughs> while to figure out that was probably not the best. 
Within 24 hours, we'd helped our first person. He was a 76-year-old man who was stuck in Maruya. He wasn't from there, he didn't have a place to stay, and he'd slept the last two nights in his car. His wife got in touch with us and said, can you help us? We found a local host who could put him up for a few nights. That, the host actually let him wear his own clothes. They wound up making him dinner, he stayed there a few nights before the roads opened and he could get out. To be honest, if that had been it, if that had been the one thing we'd done, I think it would have been worth our time. But within a week, Finderbed had grown astronomically. Paige Burton came on board with me as co-founder and brought along a team of 30 volunteers. A volunteer team is now about 60. We have over 8,500 people across Australia have registered to say they have a spare bed, a mattress, a caravan that they're willing to share for free with someone who needs it. We've helped. <laughs> People are just so generous when they have a chance to be. In total, we've helped over 350 people find everything from a place to have a shower to a home to live for the long term. That might seem like small potatoes compared to the scale of the problem, but we've found our niche in helping people who are otherwise falling through gaps, people whose needs are a little bit more complicated. I'd like to tell you about some of the people we've helped over the last few weeks. I think it's really important to keep the real stories of this crisis at the centre of what we do. We've helped a family of seven kids, three of, uh, of seven, five kids, three of whom have NDIS plans. They lost their home with almost no warning. I went to see their, the ruins of their home after I visited with them. It was astonishing. That was the only house in the street that was gone, but it was completely gone. They were living in a, um, a, a cabin at a caravan park. They'd been there for weeks. We helped them find a property. We paid for them to furnish it. We organised toys and books for the kids. We got over 100 parcels from people around Australia and the world who wanted to help this family. Then there's Joan. She's 104 and she lost everything except two bags of clothes and her dog. Three of their family lost their homes. Her family referred to her as a climate refugee. She had specific needs. She needed a single-storey house. It needed to be accessible. It was to, and she, they wanted to keep her with her family. We helped. We helped find a house. We helped install grab rails. And I got to deliver a beautiful quilt that had been made by some people in Queensland for her. And there's Gillian, who lost her home in central Queensland um, in October. They, lived in the, they were living in the shed, she and her husband, while they were um, saving to build their dream house. The kit home burned as well as the shed. Now they're living in a burnt-out bus on their property. But when I called her and said, can we help you? Can we give you a caravan? She said, no, there's got to be people who are worse off than us. We're okay. It was only when I asked her, what do you miss? What are the things that you really need that she said, I used to collect stuffed tigers. I love tigers. <laughs> I lost my tiger collection. <laughs> so once again, we put out a call and people around Australia <laughs> sent stuffed tigers. Aww. It sounds silly, but she was in tears on the phone. She was just so happy to have her tiger collection back. 
There's South Coast Donation Logistics, an amazing group of people down on the South Coast. Matthew Hatcher is the um, local coffee roaster. He runs Gorilla Roasters at Mossy Point. He put his own business on hold and coordinated uh, donations from across the country. Well, he's working closely with local farmers and businesses. We've helped them by coordinating donations, by funding some of their requests, and by sourcing some others. It's laptops for HSC students who lost all their study notes. It's a surfboard for the kid who'd been asking his mum and dad for one for years to get it for Christmas, only to lose it a week later. And we're working with Amethyst and the team at Indigenous Crisis Response and Recovery. The stories we're hearing from Amethyst are some of the saddest. There are dozens of families still living in tents who've lost their home and have nowhere to go. This is an effort led by local Aboriginal people. They're working with people who've fallen through the gaps. We currently have a list of eight families who need a place to stay and we're working to source caravans, temporary demountable houses and cars for them. All of this is to say the crisis is ongoing. We've learnt a lot in a short period of time. I had no intention of running a not-for-profit. We've made mistakes, absolutely, but we've learnt. We've built close relationships with the people in the affected communities and we're committed to standing by them as they rebuild. We're committed to asking them, what do you need? What does the future look like for you? Talking to these people, the reality is really sinking in now. The attention is fading and some of that sense of urgency is gone. And it, it seems to be quite a dark moment for lots of them. The scale of what needs to be done is overwhelming. So we see our role going forward as continuing to connect people from across Australia with people in these communities to give small, practical and direct ways of helping. To take some of that burden, to say we're here with you, and to be part not only of the recovery, but of rebuilding too. Thank you very much. Good on you, Erin, for the work that you've done. And you're still looking for resources. There's still plenty to be done, as you're saying over and over. So much to do. Right? So the best way to get in touch with you? Findabed.com.au. Um, just saying, I think share a bed would also have another market, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> maybe not right now. Um, that would have been funny if you'd actually trademarked that particular one. Oh no, it went out of share a bed for a good couple of hours <laughs> before someone it? tapped me on the shoulder and said, maybe not. <laughs> for those quiet nights. Um, <laughs> sorry to segue to you on this actual moment. Um, Elizabeth Mossop, <laughs> who is Professor of Landscape Architecture. She's also Dean of Design Architecture and Building at the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, and I also want to point out, because this is relevant, I think, to what she's going to be talking about, which is your, she's a founding principal of Spackman Mossop and Michael's Landscape Architects, because they're based in Sydney and Detroit and New Orleans. Um, and I think you were there at a pretty crucial time. Please welcome Elizabeth Mossop. Good afternoon. I'm going to share some observations about the current bushfire disasters 
that have been informed by my experience of living through Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath in New Orleans, and in my planning work on other natural disasters like Superstorm Sandy. Like so many people in this bushfire season, my understanding of disasters was totally changed by my personal experience in Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath in Louisiana. My professional life had been involved with designing parks and town centres and infrastructure and thinking about what makes cities work. When the storm hit, I was a single parent living outside New Orleans with my daughter. I'd never been through a storm like it, and I was terrified. I can remember standing at the front door with my baby in my arms, looking over the dark city with absolutely no idea of what was going to happen. Little did I know, all my neighbours who hadn't evacuated were also awake, sitting in the dark in their living rooms with their guns out, waiting for looters and rioters who never arrived. I'm just looking for the thing. Thank you. My now husband lived in Lakeview, like the marvellous people who made this sign, one of the lowest-lying neighbourhoods in New Orleans. And he lost everything in the storm, his house, all of his possessions, everything, <laughs> other than an amphibious <laughs> truck that he just happened to have at the time. So what I want to propose this afternoon comes from this starting point and the 15 subsequent years of work on the recovery and reconstruction of New Orleans, the Gulf Coast, and urban rebuilding work in Detroit. Until people are safe and their lives are restored in some real way, it's much too hard to look into the future. After Katrina, there were many meetings and symposia involving lots of well-meaning experts who flew in from all around the country to provide tons of advice and solutions to the city and its residents. And they often received a pretty hostile reception from the locals. I can remember being at a symposium at Tulane University and seeing an eminent expert from New York being chastised by a local resident who said to him, Baby, how do you think that nonsense going to help me get a roof on my house? When your reality looks like this, you've got immediate needs to be met, as Erin has just been talking about. In the first months and years after Katrina, many residents couldn't get anybody to help them to figure out how to repair their houses, put the roofs back on, reopen businesses, support insurance claims, open schools, and so on. There was an astounding lack of leadership at every level of government. You'll remember George W. <laughs> Kathleen Blanco, the governor, and the marvellous Mayor Ray Nagan, who, of course, will be in jail until 2023. And this ineffective disaster response made everything worse and slowed down future planning. Here, at least, we still have a state apparatus that is more functional than that. But in order to be able to move forward, you have to put in place robust, inclusive rebuilding processes so that people can have hope and confidence. What these processes look like can take many different forms, 
and they can involve people in different ways. But I think it's really important to stop talking about this as a natural disaster. For starters, disasters are not discrete one-off events. Disasters take a really, really long time. While they apparently happen at a specific moment, they actually take a long time to be created, and they take a really, really long time to recover from. The fire or flood or storm happens, and it uncovers a set of underlying conditions that have often been decades in the making. In other words, disasters are often human-created as much as they are natural. And this means that if you want to understand the disaster, you've got to excavate the forces that have created the moment of crisis. Hurricane Katrina uncovered faulty construction of levees, corruption, inadequate maintenance of pump systems and flood walls, which directly caused their failure when the hurricane hit. This failure totally changed the impact of the storm. It flooded 80% of the city, and it left it flooded for up to eight weeks. Had the infrastructure not failed, the city would have been largely protected. And when the floodwaters came in, they would have been pumped out. So the disaster wasn't, in fact, the hurricane. It was the levee failure, which was then compounded by lack of disaster response and recovery. In the case of the recent fires, there are a series of underlying conditions that have created this current disaster. Obviously, we have a landscape ecology that has a propensity for fire. This is a given. But what we don't understand is what effects the ongoing climate change and fluctuation will have on these systems, drought, higher temperatures. We also have settlement patterns pushing into much more vulnerable forested areas, massively increasing the number of people and the investment that will continue to be in harm's way. So in future, we need to have a much better understanding of risk. We need to be very clear about where settlements are viable, where they are too risky, and what are the regulations that govern how development happens. We've also seen for the last 30 years continuing withdrawal of resources for good land management. Federal and state government have been starving national parks, conservation and land planning, effectively leaving us with only farmers and forestry interests taking the lion's share of responsibility and nobody really managing land in the public interest. This has got to change. We need to reprioritize this. And as Lorena was saying, we have to understand and be led by traditional land management practices. We also have a lack of national firefighting assets and we rely almost entirely on volunteers. We currently have an absolutely terrific system for the situation 20 years ago. Now we have to rethink the whole question of capacity. Is it about volunteers? Is it about professionals, civil defence forces? What's this going to look like? And of course, we've got massive government failure to recognise the urgency of climate crisis and to act on all of these things. Now, weirdly, I find this hopeful. Because if you think about how much of the current crisis is created by humans, it suggests to me that we also still have agency in positively improving the situation.
So we can't go on doing the same things and expecting a different outcome. We have to make safer and more resilient communities in this new reality. And making change is way harder than restoring the status quo. One of the most important things is knowing what you want to work towards. Who's going to lead this change? Wouldn't it be lovely if we could rely on government to make the change for us? But I can't help feeling that we are at a, a moment when it's become very, very clear to us that this isn't going to happen. Communities are the most invested in their own futures. Whether we are talking about a small town, whether we are talking about a big city, whether we are talking about broader ideas of the Australian community. They're invested. And so we need communities to partner with experts to figure out what a sustainable future is going to be. In New Orleans, in the absence of government action, community groups like these people from the Pontilly Disaster Collaborative found resources from a foundation to hire their own experts to work with them to solve local flooding. These people became expert in the technical issues of urban flooding. They really began to understand water engineering. They brought the local community along and they were able to come up and we came up with them with a solution that would not have been possible without this genuine partnership. And they then lobbied the city and leveraged their greater command than the city had of the flood engineering to get very substantial funding to implement an extensive green infrastructure project that provided community open space, recreational trails, pedestrian connections, and mitigated flooding that had plagued the neighborhood for decades. But what does resilience look like in 21st century Australia? If communities are going to be successful in charting a way forward, they have to be able to make really hard decisions. Often the ongoing threat posed by natural hazards means that some areas won't be suitable for inhabitation in the future. In New Orleans, there are neighbourhoods that are so low-lying and vulnerable to flooding that people will be inundated every year. In many coastal areas, the cost of preserving beachfront properties from storms will become unsustainable very quickly. In some areas, maybe we're going to find the risk of fire may be so great that development is too risky. Communities will need to make judgments on the costs and benefits of what it takes to support inhabitation. These are some of the most difficult questions you ever have to answer. So you have to have really robust, inclusive ways of making these decisions. I suggest we need new forms of democratic processes to do this. One of the things you've got to do is you've got to have a compelling vision for the future. You've got to, agreeing on what this vision is, it's one of the most challenging things. But you've got to have this vision so that any post-disaster spending that happens isn't wasted. If your neighbourhood looks like this, you've got to figure out what you want it to look like. Maybe you want it to look like this in the future. So that that process is incredibly important in order to be able to move forward.
But resilience is going to look different for every place. It might mean being focused on community hubs to provide support and gathering places for people. It might be about the creation of community parks and open space. It might be about turning land that looks like this into land that looks like this and a focus on urban food production or other new industries. Comprehensive planning is really difficult. In New Orleans, it took eight years to get to the point of having this integrated water plan. This plan reworked the city's aging infrastructure to combine flood mitigation, storm protection, drainage, open space, education and development into a much more sustainable form. Resilience can also focus on infrastructure, the most significant investment that we make in most of our communities, and it can redesign it to uh, address disaster planning. In this instance, you can see here existing roads converted into a different uh, configuration to cope with flood mitigation, water storage, and also, I think, much nicer streets. The other key to resilience is, of course, related to education and public awareness and the need to empower people to understand what are the factors in play in the places where they live. So it's really tough to be visionary. It's not enough just to fix what's there. You have to be very highly motivated and you have to get professional help in order to be able to do this. Hard decisions are key, but they are the only way to do that. They've got to be inclusive. They have to be fair. They've got to be well informed. You've got to have the best information that's available. So we really need to have new forms of democracy to help us to, to get this done. So don't wait. We all need to get to work on a more resilient Australia. Thank you. I love the idea. I, I think it's an important point about the language around natural disaster, and that had actually never occurred to me before, how important it is to point out when disasters are unnatural um, and exacerbated by our own doing. And Brad Pitt, of course, was involved in the rebuilding in New Orleans. I was just thinking maybe with the share of bed situation, <laughs> something really magical could work out there. But anyway, I'll move on from share of bed eventually. <laughs> um, one thing we're all talking about now, like if any of you have children, if any of you have grandchildren, is watching anxiety amongst them around climate change. And then there's, there's, there's a collective trauma, there's community trauma, there's small town trauma, there's the firefighters, the first responders. Um, where are we at with mental health and how do we protect against it and how do we mitigate and how do we get smart about about the right interventions and when. And this is why Christine Morgan is speaking to us today. She's the CEO of the National Mental Health Commission and National Suicide Prevention Advisor to Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Uh, she's also been CEO of and director of the National Eating Disorders Collaboration. So please welcome her today. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. I think that might be a tad opportunistic about Brad Pitt and Shara Bed. <laughs> Just go asking for, for a friend. I think so. That's a good one. <laughs> so, look, I would like to begin by acknowledging the uh, traditional owners of the land upon which we're meeting today, the Gadigal people, and to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and future. 
I would also like to acknowledge all of those in the room who have had a direct, indirect impact from the fires that we've been going through, and now the floods, and before that, the drought. It's layer upon layer upon layer. As we've heard about today, um, what has happened, and Nick said this so eloquently, it wasn't the norm. In fact, the events of the last few months have been seismic. They've challenged so many fundamentals for so many of us. We know, expect, and to a large degree, actually understand bushfires in Australia. They're a regular feature every year. We also know to expect severe bushfires. We remember Ash Wednesday. We remember Black Saturday. They're etched on our memories. They're part of our national fabric. But then came this season. Some fires began in August. They spread outside jurisdictional boundaries. I was talking to the fire captain of the brigade that fought a fire in a tiny little village in the New South Wales Southern Highlands called Balmoral. They lost half their houses in that community, but in saving others, they performed a feat that was almost beyond belief. He helped me begin to understand the reality. Now, he's been a volunteer, volunteer sorry, bushfire captain for decades. He served in the Australian Defence Force. He's not one to panic under pressure. He had tears in his eyes as he conveyed to me, or tried to, the sheer terror he experienced. His sense of utter isolation as he stood with a fire hose in a maelstrom of horror. Trees exploding around him, as we've heard, pitch dark in the middle of the afternoon. Desperate cries from his fellow fireys, who he couldn't see, let alone help. And his own sense that he probably wouldn't survive that day. He did. He fought. He refused to give up. Without knowing what to do, he did his best, and he won through. His fellow fiery who was with him that day, Tracy, told me of her loss. She'd lived in that community for two years with her single daughter and granddaughter, and she was actually away from Balmoral when the fire hit, and she raced to rejoin the fight. But in transit, she heard over the radio of the, of the houses that were under threat. One was hers. She desperately tried to contact her daughter. She couldn't. And slowly but surely, the horror dawned on her that her daughter was in the house. The next few hours were a terror that she could not describe. Her daughter was caught, but did survive. Over and above the fire itself, they felt abandoned. They felt let down. The resources they needed weren't there. The backup was slow. They felt everyone else was just as shell-shocked as themselves, but they knew everybody was fighting hard. We talked about those events, and they both acknowledged that it can't help but have an impact on mental health. But as Cathy said to me, it's one thing to know that, but what can you do about it except soldier on? We have to be strong. I have to be strong for my daughter. She and I are incredibly close, but she can't even find the words to tell me what it was like being in that house. As a held her and we just cried together, 
all I could say was, it's okay to not be okay. We have three core components to our being. We have our physical health, we have our mental health, and we have our spirituality or beliefs. When our physical health is affected, we know what to do, and we do it. If any of us here today believe that we have any threat from the coronavirus, we're hot-footing it down to our GP as of yesterday. But we're not so conscious or willing to accept our mental health. But just think about it. How could anybody go through the trauma of these fires and not be impacted? That doesn't mean they're mentally ill. What it means is that their mental health and well-being has been affected. They have witnessed, they have suffered trauma. We all have. We all react differently. As we've heard, Erin, we are all individuals. To ignore that is to allow part of us to continue to be damaged. How can we experience the reality of our beliefs challenged. As we react to the enormous physicality of what's happened, it is actually probably beyond our comprehension. But slowly, as the days, the weeks, and the months go on, and potentially years, the reality does come through. It is shock in the real sense of that word. And the impact doesn't stop with extinguishing the fire. We have a long road ahead of rebuilding, of rebuilding our houses, our communities, and our lives. And as a country, as we've just heard, we have to rethink and address how we respond to this reality and the fact that it will happen again. The road to recovery will not be smooth, it will not go easily, and it probably won't go well. That is reality. As we try and navigate our way through all of this, will be upset, irritated, exasperated. How can we not be? But underpinning it all, we are mentally fragile, not robust. So at this time, those feelings will be amplified. For some, we will feel teary. For some, weary. Some will be down. Others will have inexplicable flashes of sheer anger. We won't sleep, we'll have headaches. It will go on. We know from Black Saturday that five years afterwards, many were still feeling the impact on their mental health and well-being. The starting point is incredibly important because we must heal, we must strengthen our mental well-being as foundational to our recovery the recovery of ourselves personally, and the recovery of our communities. So what is that starting point? Well, one of the challenges that we have in Australia, and I've seen this over the last few months, uh, as we have worked to put together the mental health response, and then as we've tracked its take-up over the last few weeks, those of us who know about our mental health and well-being and are comfortable accessing those services, are finding a way to do so. But those we're not reaching are our wonderful, stoic Aussies. Those who saved, you said, Erin, there's got to be somebody worse off than me, and I will keep going. But actually, if we don't stop and address our mental health, 
our ability as individuals to recover can't but be compromised. So what is the starting point? The starting point is to stop right there, to challenge those feelings almost of stigma that we still have. It's okay for somebody else to need help, but not me. Realise it's not just our family, our friends and our neighbours who need help, but it's ourselves, and that's okay. We've been through something that can't but have impacted us. It's okay to not be okay. The next step, and this can be really hard for some of us, is to find the words to tell our story. For some it will come easily, for others it won't. But the most important thing is to acknowledge it, own it, and tell it. By expressing it, we're lessening its hold on us. And for those who listen, never ever underplay the significance, the importance of what we call incidental counselling, being there for each other. Some of us will also need ongoing support, and that is also okay. If we need antibiotics for a physical ailment, we take as many dosages as it requires. It's similar for our mental health. We can and should allow ourselves to heal fully and to make sure that we take the support that's there. There's counselling and psychological supports available wherever you are. It may be difficult to access them, particularly with all the confusion on the ground, but reach out to us, we will connect you. And most importantly, as we look to our mental health and well-being, we need to rebuild our belief structure. The shining gem that has emerged from these tragic events is the power of human kindness and connectedness. We've been stripped to our cause, and in doing so, we've recognised and allowed to emerge our need for each other. We've not chosen to be vulnerable, the fires have meant we've had no choice but to be. Some of us have lost everything, but we're still here. While we have our lives in each other, we have hope. This is a long journey, but it's one that we will be taking together. The journey will reshape us as individuals, as communities, and as a nation. As we rebuild, let's do so with a commitment to the mental health and well-being of each of us. Let us recognise that our mental health is as important to us as our physical well-being. Let's allow ourselves to be strong in our vulnerability, to reach out to each other, and to reset our world in a way that aligns with our beliefs. Let us help each other, but let's also help ourselves. It's okay to not be okay and it's more than okay to seek help for our mental health and well-being. Thank you. Thanks so much, Christine. I remember when some of the fires were breaking out in areas like Taree, people saying on the news, we need, we need counsellors here now. Yep. Now. And, and, and that really shifted the debate in a way of like, we don't think about that as a first or second responder kind of situation, but and in the absence of being able to have like a crack team out there and moving amongst affected communities, you're right, people have learnt to rely on each other. Each other. Yeah. But the crucial thing being that you address it before it turns into a recurring trauma. That's the key, isn't it? That's early yeah. intervention. Anyway, thank you for your, for your words. Um, 
Dr. Dar Dr. Larry Vogelnest is our final speaker today. He is the senior veterinarian at Taronga Zoo, um, and he manages the Taronga Wildlife Hospital. Um, he works with endangered species, actually, and breeding programs, and mammals are kind of his jam. He's the uh, principal editor of Medicine of Australian Mammals and also Radiology of Australian Mammals. And we've, we've got so much to find out about what we can do to help, help the animals we've all been so worried about. So welcome to the stage, please. Thanks, Julie, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak here this afternoon. So I have a, uh, a house, actually, um, on the south coast in Rosedale uh, with my partner, who's actually the vet at Mogo Zoo. And uh, on the 31st of, uh, of December, at about quarter past uh, six in the morning, uh, we got a phone call on our landline, which was quite unusual. And the, it was a recorded message telling us to evacuate to our nearest beach immediately. Anyway, we started casually packing up, and the phone rang again half an hour later, and it said the same message, you need to evacuate. So we hurried up, and we headed to uh, Malua Bay Beach, which was about three kilometres north. I decided not to go to Rosedale Beach, because it was uh, safer to go to, to Malua Bay. And we spent the last day of 2019 with about a 1,000 other people, and half as many animals, dogs, cats, horses, birds, guinea pigs, on Malua Bay Beach. And as the morning went by, the fire front approached us closer and closer. And it was one of the most uh, uh, horrific experiences uh, that we've had in our lives, and frightening experiences. Of course, at the same time, we had no idea what was happening at Rosedale, three kilometres to the south. And we didn't even know till the next day. Next day, we drove into Rosedale, and this is what faced us. 60 houses burnt down in Rosedale. We got through that day, on, and on the 2nd of, uh, of December, pretty similar to Nick's experience, I decided to have a walk down Rosedale Beach, and there was piles of ash on the, on the beach. And as I walked along, I noticed some coloured feathers poking through the ash, and I uncovered the bird, and it was a rainbow lorikeet. And as I worked walked further along, there were carcasses of many, many different species of birds strewn along the beach, and species, of course, that you wouldn't usually see washed up on a beach. Parrots, pigeons, um, kookaburras, kingfishers, honey-eaters, those sorts of species. And it was at this moment, actually, that it really dawned on me how significant the impact of the fires was on wildlife. And of course, all these birds had succumbed probably to smoke inhalation as they escaped from the fires heading out to the ocean and dropped dead in the ocean. So it's been estimated that over a billion animals have perished as a result of the bushfire catastrophe. And this loss of fauna, both vertebrates and invertebrates, and also, of course, the flora, Likely, is likely to have a significant impact on, on Australia's biodiversity. And of course, many species are already under threat due to habitat loss, habitat loss, invasive species, disease, and other climate change events. And the impact of these fires has actually been compounded by the prolonged drought and heat wave events, and species such as frogs, platypus, bats, 
although not necessarily impacted directly by the fires, are dying in large numbers. In fact, Taronga has assisted Tidbinbilla Nature Reserve, which is in the ACT, to, with the rescue of seven platypus from their disappearing waterways, which are now in our care. And this theme of platypus being found suffering and dead in, in waterways that are disappearing is very common. And then together with New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment and the Australian Museum, Taronga also rescued the northern, a northern population of Buralong frogs, which are now also in our care. And of course, in recent years, we've heard about large numbers of, uh, of flying foxes that have succumbed uh, during heatwave events. Most, of the, most impacted are mothers with their pups, and the mothers dying, leaving their pups orphaned. And hundreds and hundreds of these orphaned pups are being cared by, by ourselves and wildlife carers uh, uh, through, through New South Wales. So bushfires, of course, have been part of the Australian landscape for many, many thousands of years. And many Australian plants rely on fire for seed activation, dispersal, germination and flowering. Others sprout growth after a fire, the so-called epicormic shoots. And many have fire protective mechanisms, such as underground woody organs, dead, dense insulation around the stems. And many of our trees, of course, have very tall crowns. Similarly, many Australian animals are well adapted to dealing with bushfires. Many sense the fire long before it arrives, and they seek refuge in burrows, rock crevices or caves, while others flee or retreat to dams and creek lines. And koalas, with their thick, dense, protective coat, climb to the top of the tall crowns of trees and curl up in a tight ball, and in many in normal circumstances would survive the fires. So why have the recent fires been so had such a catastrophic impact on our wildlife and our flora? So with climate change, of course, we're seeing hotter and drier conditions, and fires are larger and more intense, resulting in crown fires and firestorms, these so-called megafires. And these adaptations of our fauna and flora are not protective in these conditions, resulting in cat catastrophic consequences for our plants and wildlife populations and individuals. And many anim animals sadly succumb and die in these fires. Those that survive suffer burns, resulting in pain and suffering. They lose habitat, food and shelter, and feral predators and weeds invade. So many org organizations have been involved in this enormous uh, effort, in the enormous wildlife response. And this, in fact, in some cases, started well before the fires hit critical habitat. And for example, together with a, with a group called Science for Wildlife, we rescued 12 koalas from a genetically important population in the Blue Mountains. And we have those animals now at the zoo caring for them in the hope that we'll be able to return them to their home soon. And the rescue of Wildlife during and after fires often is, is often very complicated by the challenges of searching, searching the fire grounds. And in some cases, it, uh, it may be several days before, before these uh, areas can be searched and animals rescued. So bushfire-affected wildlife suffer burns, smoke inhalation, dehydration, exhaustion, and other, industries, other injuries. And early assessment and triage are important to ensure optimal welfare outcomes for animals and that resources are put into those most likely to survive. 
Another aim is to determine suitability for return to the wild after treatment. And these assessments may occur in the field, at the fire grounds, or in triage centres. And animals are generally categorised as healthy, and these animals may be released immediately or housed temporarily until suitable release sites can be uh, identified. And there are others that require wound care and bandaging, and there are others that may require critical care, and these are particularly species that are maybe uh, endangered or threatened species, or those that require specialist care. And sadly, a large number actually need to be euthanized. So wound care and bandaging, pain relief, fluids, nutrition are key elements to the treatment of burns patients. And then rehabilitation is an important component of the care of burnt wildlife. And this is usually undertaken by dedicated wildlife volunteer organisations. And of course, release is our goal and our, uh, of our efforts and very careful consideration must be given to how, when and where this can occur. And one of the challenges that's being faced at the moment, of course, is that the habitat where these animals have lived you know, does no longer exist. And finding places where to release these animals has become very challenging. And of course, many, many wildlife survive the fires, but they suffer starvation, dehydration, displacement, predation, and vehicle strike due to loss of habitat, food, and water resources. An important component of the wildlife response is to provide support for affected animals through provision of food, water, and shelter. However, very careful consideration must be given as to how this is done to ensure no harm to wildlife and the environment. And there are many now many useful resources available to provide advice on provision of food and water to wildlife uh, during and after these sorts of emergencies. And of course, um, under normal circumstances, it's not really recommended to feed wildlife, but in, after emergencies such as these bushfires, where they are, are starving and dehydrated, there are options for providing that support. So, of course, now is the really difficult time as well, because following this initial crisis, our attention must turn to, re to assessing the damage and the impact on species and setting long-term recovery strategies. And this involves restoration of habitat and species repopulation. And zoos in Australia are actually going to play a crucial role in managing breed for release programs to re-establish healthy, genetically viable animal populations of endangered and threatened species. And Taronga will lead this uh, zoo-based breeding programs in New South Wales to repopulate species impacted by the bushfires and the drought. And these include species such as the region honeyeater, koalas, brush-tailed rock wallabies, platypus, and several amphibian species, such as the corroboree frogs. Of course, invasive weeds and feral species trend, tend to re-establish more rapidly than native species in fire-disturbed habitats, and the removal to prevent establishment where they are likely to displace native species is critical. And finally, we need to reassess the threat status of species severely affected by drought and fires to determine whether their extinction risk has changed or increased particularly. And a good example is the platypus, where it was previously considered least concern. They may now, in fact, be threatened. And then this little creature down 
on the on the, the right of the photo of the slide, the aptly named critically endangered smoky mouse. This little creature may actually be extinct now. It only exists in areas in New South Wales and Victoria that have been impacted by fire. And we don't even know at this point in time whether this creature still exists in Australia. If it does, there'll be an, uh, it'll be an emergency, emergency situation to try and recover the species, and that may require bringing several of them into a care uh, and breed up the populations for future release. And finally, I think uh, just a big shout out to, to emergency services, the Australian Defence Force, wildlife volunteers, wildlife agency field staff, and dozens and dozens of veterinarians and veterinary nurses that were involved in, in this enormous wildlife response and still very much involved. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sorry, I'm just getting a little bit... I just need a little bit of assistance with this because we've just got a... Um, with Slido, so I'm just going to ask if we also have microphones. So we're going to have to go old school because my Slido is not working right now. Thank you so much for that. Um, while we wait to see if anyone's got questions, we've got m microphones here. I'll just ask you about the, the whole sense of this... Sorry? Microphones on either side? One here and one here. <coughs> Actually, we'll, we'll let this gentleman go. Yes. Is that all? Yep. Yeah, my name is Kim Bevlimon. Um, it's interesting. I, I've been an environmental professional now for well over 40 years. And I was driving home from work recently on the National Park Ranger, apparently. But they were talking about the impact on mental health mm. of the fires and the catastrophes. And something someone said actually brought it home to me. Having been involved in environmental protection and management for so long, and being aware, particularly the last 15, 10, 15 years of the impact of climate change and our mismanagement of the environment and destruction of the environment by various means, and being aware of this and trying to explain to people that we've got to change our way of life, and it was, with this catastrophe, it was a feeling of bloody hell, it's arrived. Mm. All these things that, you know, myself and others have been predicting for so long and being aware of the hard science. And it was, I suddenly realised that's why I've been feeling so flat lately, yeah. because it's, yeah. it's actually had a huge impact on me. And part of it's actually feeling like I haven't succeeded. You know, it's, it's mm. part of my problem that I haven't done enough with the knowledge that I know, and I know a lot of my colleagues are starting to feel the same way. Yeah. Luckily, a lot of them have been involved in firefighting, particularly with national parks, and I know that the pressure's come off now, and I know some of them have already said they're starting to feel flat about it. Yeah. And it's an area which hasn't been addressed at all. Um, there's the people, and rightly so, the people that have been involved at the, at the, right at the front that have uh, been severely impacted. But it'll be interesting to probably investigate a bit further how much it is affecting people involved Absolutely. in environmental management and protection because I know it's had a huge impact on me and I've, it's, it's a strange feeling to have actually feeling like that because I'm normally a fairly robust person yeah. and things like that and um, yeah. it's, it's something which uh, I don't think it's been addressed at all yet. Mm. Christine, comment on that? Yes. Thank you. And look, thank you for sharing that because I think that that captures just so 
uh, precisely how much of an impact this does have on so many of our mental health and well-being. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, I think our mental health and well-being also ties in with a lot of our belief structures. And there are all of those um, elements of feeling that we have. And one of the things that's most challenging about our mental health is with our physical health, we often have signs that we can point to and say to somebody, look, I've got a lump, a bump, something's broken. With our mental health, the only way we can start to deal with it is to recognise the feelings as being something a bit different, to withhold judgement of ourselves is most important, and then to try and find some words to put around it and to recognise that the beginning of it is to actually try to express it. But you are so right, it will come out, and it may come out in physical ways of just being tired, distressed, um, but we will also be impacted from so many different ways. And I think one of our challenges, you talked about the short term we need counselling. Mm. And yes, we do. Actually, what we need in the short term is what we call psychological first aid, which is, mm. can we just actually know some strategies and get back some hope? Right. Um, and then what can we do about it? But I think my call out to all of us is to say, um, this is something that will continue to impact us on a daily basis. It's not linear, it's not static, and it will have many different manifestations. So let's suspend judgment of ourselves and really just start to acknowledge that. Right, but how, how sometimes it will feel hard to restore hope. It sure That's, does, doesn't it? But yeah. is hope crucial to recovery? Long term, long term part of our very humanness needs a sense of hope mm. and where we can go to. But I think that as with a physical ailment, we need to actually allow ourselves to heal grassroots up. With When we are mentally impacted, it is incredibly important. We just don't give ourselves an artificial sense of hope. Part of it is allowing ourselves to feel so crap mm. and mm. just don't do it alone. Mm. That is the key. Um, it's not pleasant, and I think many of us, when we are being strong, it's because we can kind of look over the precipice and think, that is a black place I don't want to go. Mm. If we don't go, we probably can't come out the other side. This is the question I wanted to ask you, Larry, coming out of your talk, is what is... It, what is I've heard climate scientists talk about the psychological difficulty of, of, having, this, of having to... Um, express something that's basically indigestible and incomprehensible about what's happening to the earth. But I mean, wh what about you in terms of what, something that really psychologically affected yeah. a lot of people with seeing these imagery of all of these, these animals? Is that something that you had to work yeah. to counter just kind of comprehending the sheer scale of what's happened and what will be required to, to even fix some of it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, know, I mean, it's, a, it's overwhelming, in mm. fact. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I think this is, is one of the... Uh, the biggest issues uh, with with people that work in, you know, disaster situations, whether it be with humans or animals, mm. um, is to deal with this this sort of scale of, of of death and destruction that's there, and and it, it has a significant impact on on mental health, and um, you know, there's this sort of uh, moral stress and con compassion fatigue yeah. are, are big issues in, in in people that you know that that work in these situations for sure, and. Um, I think, uh, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because at the time you don't think about it, but it's really afterwards mm. that, uh, that, you know, you, you sit back and you go, my God, that was that's horrific, it's terrible. And, you know, you, you just feel the sense of, uh, you know, of, of, of depression. Mm. It's, yeah, definitely. And is the hope the, key, hope the key thing for you or is it being able to roll your sleeves up and do stuff? 
Well, at the time you do. That's what yeah. you do. You know, you just get get stuck in there and you do yeah. what you need to do. And yep. it's it's really afterwards that it sort of really hits you. That's right. for sure. Yep. When you need to be careful with yourself mm. and everyone mm. around you. Um, is there another? Oh, we have this back now. But you're waiting. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, the science is quite clear. The climate's changing, and the the rate at which it's changing is increasing. Um, since 1750, the planet has warmed on average uh, 1.1 degrees. Um, the World Meteorological Organization now says that we are on track by the end of the century to warm between 3.5 and 5.5 degrees. My question to the panel is at what point does talking about resilience adaptation, and worst of all, hope, become plainly immoral. When we, as a nation, are furiously complicit with our own self-destruction. Thank you. Yeah. Who would like to speak to that? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have to rise up. Like, frankly, this is unacceptable. I think that, you know, if we're, this is what we're seeing at 1.2 degrees or 1.1 degrees, then um, the future at, at four degrees is unimaginable. And, and we cannot abide by it. We, we can't place responsibility on individuals to take action to change this. Um, it is the responsibility of our leaders. It is responsibility of people in power throughout our society. And they will be held culpable for not taking action. Mm. I can see a place where there are Nuremberg trials for people who haven't taken action. But there are degrees of power in this situation. You know, at one end, we have the animals who are powerless to change the situation. And at the other end, we have our leaders of industry and politics who have direct control over what we do as a nation right now. But all of us are somewhere on this spectrum. All of us have power to take action and to maintain some level of hope. What is the alternative? You know, if, if we can't see hope, sure, we have to go to those dark places, but we can't resign ourselves to those dark places because then we can't take action to make change. So we have to have hope. So I don't think it's immoral to call for hope. I think we must have hope so we can make change. And all of us must make change with the power that we have. We must use the resources that we have to affect change in society. And if you're a leader, if you're somebody who exercises a lot of power, you have to make positive change now because you will be held responsible. Mm. Um, I do. I do think that's an excellent question. Because I, I, I want Elizabeth, you were talking about the need for local leadership and the need to kind of recognise that communities have, do have some kind of power and influence, and need to, you know, um, be res restoring themselves to some extent. What of those who say, if we continue, to, if we just talk about community communities and what we need to do at a local level, we are in fact taking heat off this a kind of stagnation at a national level or denial amongst some? Yes, exactly. And I think when we're talking about 
well, when I'm talking about communities, I'm not only talking about local communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I made a decision three years ago to come back to Australia, having lived in the US for almost 20 years, in part because of my lack of stomach for the political situation, and yet <laughs> I come back to ah. you know the clown show that passes <laughs> for uh, Australian politics. And I've got to say, I I'm pretty stumped in terms of political change. I, there, there are no options. There is no one for me to vote for. And, you know, I'm fairly centrist in terms of my politics. You know, I care desperately about climate change. I can't bear to live in, a, in an Australia that continues to put people in concentration camps. <laughs> so for me, these questions about hope and action are inextricably linked. Mm. I wonder if out of this giant train wreck where we are at the moment, we will see really major grassroots, non-violent activism. I guess in terms of my thinking, given the political options that we have, to me, that actually really seems like the only possible way forward. But I've got to say, I'm gobsmacked. I don't know what is going on in the Australian electorate, but I really hope that the fact that so many people now have been touched more directly or indirectly by these disastrous experiences, I'm hoping that's going to change the way people think. Mm. Yeah. And surely, Lorraine, listening more or having leadership from First Nations people would change the way people think as well. How do you think that would change our cultural mindset? And I'm asking you this as well because, I'm back on Slido, the lead question is, is asking you, who's, who are some of the leading First Nations experts you would recommend we follow to learn more about fire management practices? Okay, well, if you stick around to the next session, you'll hear from Oliver Costello, who's from the uh, National Fire Sticks, Indigenous Fire Sticks Alliance, who's, um, who's got an, an enormous wealth of knowledge that he wants to share. I mean, we talk about our mental health in relation to these catastrophic bushfires. We're all suffering because the country is sick. I mean, what you're feeling is this connection to this land we walk on. If it's ailing, so are you. So this is why we feel this way. It's not just from the enormity of a billion animals dead and watching our, our country go up in flames. You, you are connected to this place. Yeah. And that's, that's part of, I think, what you're feeling. Um, Fire Sticks Alliance, Victor Stephenson is another fantastic mm -hmm. um, thinker in this space yeah. who talks about the way that you can burn the, burn the country gently. I mean, the reason why... The, the problem we'll have now, if they can't get in there and start to heal the country, is that the, 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 the fires have been so hot that the, the wrong things are going to start germinating quickest. 
as the recovery happens. So if you might drive mm. through the bush now and you think, oh, it's turning green again, isn't that lovely? It's not the right kind of green. So these people have knowledge that they want to mm. apply to the country. And it's, I mean... But what, what there has to be is a transfer of, of authority as well. Yep. You can't just come and say, oh, we're in trouble now, help right. us. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, <laughs> that's not what we're here for. We're here to look after the country. So there has to be a power sharing. There has to be an acknowledgement. And I think there has to be a change in the way that we are listened to. And that, that comes from you know, proper political representation and all sorts of other structural reforms that, that need to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's because the country needs that help. Mm, okay. All right, well, that is the note that we're, gonna, we're going to... What? Oh, you're waiting. That. Well, we are out of time. Could we do it super fast? Uh, yeah, sorry. It was just on the point that you spoke about earlier about localism, uh, local community. Mm -hmm. uh, there actually is one like proven solution that's worked in Switzerland, which is the idea of localism, um, where you actually empower um, local communities by giving them the power to make the, um, yeah. like politically, um, the power to make decisions at a local level. Um, and so you break it up into, say, like smaller councils of the country and you have like a thousand prime ministers instead of like one. And so instead of abstracting into incompetence, you kind of, you make decisions at a very local level and then you're like, um, you're much more um, pressing on, on sort of the evidence and the facts and how do we get electricity and blah, blah, blah. So like if the people that want to build coal plants, they can go do that in their own town. The rest can like, you know, set, set themselves up with some, you know, renewable energy sources. So it actually exists. It's called localism. Um, that's like the political system that, that, that I've seen works in Switzerland. Um, so I just thought, like, do you guys want to start that? Like, um, yep, this group here, you know, the localism <laughs> team. Exactly. Like, why not? Like, it's not wanting to deflect off. from national leadership as well, right? Though. I mean, no, you still have it, but you also have like a direct democracy. So, yep. like, what you do is you kind of have the local council sit on the board, and then it kind of goes up only if they really can't solve the solution at the local right. level. So maybe like trade, like international trade issues or something like that. Okay. But right. I mean, Thanks, it man. works. Like, yep. Yeah, but. Anyway, I'm, I'm right. trying to start that, though. So like, okay. Thank you. Well, each of you does such important work, and it's been so important to hear from each of you today. And thank you for giving up your time. It is a sunny Sunday, and um, you really, your words are so valuable to all of us. Can we please just thank them again? Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.